In Panama, we were attacked by Cuban embassy thugs together with local pawns of the regime. I had two ribs broken, my, my, my knee was torn, I needed reconstruction surgery on, on my knee. Today I sit down with Orlando Gutierrez Boronat, who has spent decades raising awareness about the brutal reality of living under the Cuban regime after he fled the communist island as a child. When you look at the collapse of infrastructure, at the collapse of the economy, they're killing the, the Cuban nation. His recent book, Cuba, The Doctrine of the Lie, exposes common propaganda about Cuba and dispels common myths and misconceptions. It's very convenient to many powers that be, Russia, China, and others here in the United States, that that regime maintains the illusion of having been successful. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelik. Orlando Gutierrez Boronat, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, likewise. So tell me about what's happening in Cuba right now. Well, I think the big news in Cuba is that there is a sustained citizen uprising against the tyrannical regime, the totalitarian regime, which Cuba is suffering from. Since July 11, 2021, thousands of Cubans have gone out publicly to protest against the regime, especially young artists, women, youth, demanding change, demanding the end of communism. They're fighting for their life and they're fighting for their freedom. And it's there, the videos are there, the political prisoners are there, hundreds of people have been arrested and imprisoned. Cuba has 122 women who are political prisoners. It's the country in the world with the greatest number of political prisoners per capita. And there's a deep desire to change the regime. Why so many women? When you look at Cuban birth rates after communism took over, when you look at the level of exodus, over 200,000 Cubans have arrived in the U.S. since January of 2022. When you look at the collapse of infrastructure, at the collapse of the economy, they're killing that nation state. They're killing the, the Cuban nation. And I think that women perceive this uh, in, in a very intuitive and profound way. They know that their children, their families, their communities are being wiped out. And they've taken the lead in trying to save the country by organizing communities for civic resistance against the regime. You, you don't seem to hear a lot about this these days. I mean, there were these large protests over a year ago now, right, that, that, that did get some general coverage. But, you know, I think a lot of people today could be forgiven for not realizing even there's anything going on. There's been large protests taking place even after last year mm -hmm. uh, against the regime. This summer was full of protests throughout Cuba, but there seems to be a blackout a literal blackout on what's going on in Cuba with the citizen defiance of the regime. Any thoughts on why that is? I think that uh, one of the main reasons is that Cuba is iconic to the left. Cuba is supposed to be the model of the successful socialist revolution, and it's not that at all. It's a highly repressive regime that has downgraded the lives uh, of Cubans, that has destroyed living standards in that country that has created a crisis for, for the Cuban population. But that regime has a very good propaganda machine in its favor. And it's not just entirely Cuban, it's, it's also international. And the regime is the platform for the expansion of communist tyranny throughout Latin America, in Venezuela, in Nicaragua, in Bolivia, and now perhaps also in Chile, in Colombia. This regime is essential for the spread of these ideas and of the creation of totalitarian uh, advocates throughout the, the, the hemisphere. So I think it's very convenient to many powers that be, Russia, China, and others here in the United States, that that regime uh, maintains the illusion of having been successful. Let's go back a little bit into history here. You know, you're the author of a, of a, of a wonderful book that I've been reading about Cuba. What was it like before the revolution? 
for example? I can say this. In 1898, when the Cuban-Spanish-American War ended, Cuba was devastated. Um, Cuba had been a very profitable colony for Spain because of sugar production and tobacco production. And the wars of independence resulted in 200,000 Cubans dying and the, the country's economic infrastructure destroyed. So the Cubans, the Cuban leadership, the Cuban independence leadership, which took over Cuba in 1902 after an American occupation, which was a very good occupation, did a lot of good for the country, uh, faced a country that was still in, in a dire state. Between 1902 and 10 years later, uh, 1912, 1922, the Cuban economy boomed. Cuban living standard, standards experienced uh, a spike in improvement and growth in literacy rates, uh, hygiene, uh, education. They all increased dramatically because, to a great degree, Cubans put their best effort to rebuilding their country in freedom. There were political crises. Um, there were conflicts between political parties. But the economy of the country, the social growth remained very steady and very even. And it was done within a model of trying to build a uh, rule of law within respect for individual freedom, respect for religious uh, spirituality and all its expressions. So Cuba grew very swiftly. What occurred was that there was a, an institutional and political crisis in the late 50s with the military government taking over. That led to an insurrection and Castro and his acolytes took control of the country with great support from American liberals. Um, in every, in every way you can imagine. And the myth began to be constructed that this country had risen from a medieval state to great progress through socialism and communism, which is completely the, 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 the opposite of what really happened. What happened was that a country that was, that was flourishing, that was about to take off in the development stage, collapsed under a communist regime. An excellent book that I read last year was called The Great Lady Wink by Ashley Rinsberg. And one of the things he talks about is how, you know, essentially a New York Times journalist, whose name escapes my, my mind right now, essentially made Fidel Castro into a hero. I mean, the guy was so pro-Castro and so pro-communist, he eventually was kind of fired. It was just, it was actually even too much for the New York Times. But, um, but apparently on his first visit to America, Fidel spent, a, went back to the New York Times, spent a lot of time there and actually apparently thanked them for their apparent support. I, I don't know, even know what to make of that. Herbert Matthews was essential in building the Castro myth. He went up into the mountains of the Sierra Maestra when Castro barely had 20 people following him, and they built that into that he already had, had an army of hundreds uh, for, for the consumption of the, the U.S. public. So Herbert Matthews was very important. But that, that tour of the U.S. that you mentioned in 1959 by Castro, a public relations firm in the U.S. set that up. Who paid for that firm? Who paid for that tour of the U.S. by Castro? which presented him as a democratic reformist who was anti-communist and pro-American. All that was false. They were already building a communist state in Cuba. It's very obvious the, the steps that were taken. And what they did with that trip to the U.S. and the work of Herbert Matthews was to somehow deviate attention from what they were really doing inside Cuba. I think the left needed a successful socialist revolution that didn't have any of the, of the stains of the bad uh, reputation Stalinism had already gained in the world. Remember, by 1959, uh, Khrushchev had revealed the crimes of Stalin at the Congress of the Communist Party, and the invasion of Hungary in 1956 had taken place, the crushing of the East German worker strikes, all that was in the air. People saw how repressive communism was. Then along comes this revolution in a tropical country uh, with some charismatic leaders promising utopia and heaven for Cubans. And they began to build from the very onset 
Castro was surrounded by international advisors to help design that totalitarian state. And it's very clear in Che Guevara's writings. The purpose of that was to create a platform through which to create a socialist revolution in the U.S. and in Latin America. Through um, a combination of planning and preparation by the Cuban Communist Party and the U.S. Communist Party and other left-wing forces, an opportunity that, that emerged, Cuba became the factor for socialism in Latin America. Um, and I think that that's why, to this day, there's still an attempt to protect that regime from any bad publicity it generates itself. Marcuse clearly states in his essay on liberation that the Cuban Revolution was essential for socialism in the U.S. Um, and when you see that the role of that regime uh, since it took power, it's been a place to train U.S. left-wing activists, to indoctrinate, to create underground cells and espionage networks in the U.S., to facilitate throughout the region any kind of activity aimed at, at, uh, at opposing America's plans and at subverting democracies throughout the region. Not dictatorships, democracies. I mean, from the very onset, this regime wanted to, the Castro regime wanted to take over Venezuela, uh, to the point that they even sent armed invasions throughout the 60s. Uh, and, and the same thing was repeated in key countries which they thought were essential to creating a united Soviet socialist uh, republics of, of Latin America. And of course, to also, to also cause social tension, class struggle, and radical transformation of the United States. That's always been in the plan. It's always been part of, of what the regime, and they don't hide it that much, of what the regime states, of what it pursues. And what got me started on my book was when I found a long dialogue between Che Guevara and left-wing journalists that took place in New York City in 1964 uh, at the Cuban mission. And it was extremely revealing of what Guevara was seeking and of what these so-called journalists were also seeking. So what, what is it that was what it revealed? Well, it revealed to me uh, the, band, the madness of Guevara, of Che Guevara, a man bent on his own vision of, of what the revolution should be and how to bring about socialist transformation, and also recognizing the great disasters they were causing. But at the same time, these journalists who are all born in the U.S., are citizens of a free republic, they're urging him on. You know, they're, they're creating the myth and putting that into Guevara's mindset as they interview him. It's obvious they're using Guevara to push the idea of a socialist revolution, and Guevara thinks he's using them to consolidate that, that regime. To me, it was fascinating of the, of the relationship between so-called progressives, so the woke ideology, and hardline, radical, dangerous people like Ernesto Guevara. Okay, so I, I really want to explore that a bit more, but before we do that, Given everything you've just said, what do you make of the fact that, you know, it's very common to see kids running around in Che Guevara t-shirts? I've been a teacher for a long time. I've been, I've taught at the university level and high school for 25 years. And I think that 90% of kids wearing Che Guevara shirts, they have no idea what they're wearing because they don't know what Cuba was. And it's very sad. It's very frustrating. My country has gone to concentration camps. Uh, where people were interned simply for their faith or their lifestyle. Throughout the 60s and 70s, Castro did this, you know, uh, acts of repudiation against people for wanting to leave the country, massacres one after another against people trying to escape from that hellhole. Uh, the, the, the police state that was created with thousands of people incarcerated for their beliefs. What Cuba has gone through is, is a tragedy. It's, 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 um, it's a collapse of a culture and civilization, an induced collapse with no other comparison in Latin American history, and yet it's ignored, it's brushed away on purpose. As you're describing this, I can't help but think in my mind of 
Venezuela. Venezuela is the blue is is part of that same blueprint. One of the most advanced and consolidated democracies in Latin America was finally subverted through electoral means by a movement, a radical left-wing totalitarian movement, aided and abetted and instructed from Cuba uh, to destroy Venezuela as a democracy. And we have, what, 7 million Venezuelan refugees le uh, leaving uh, a country that was prosperous, that was helping other democracy in the, in the region, is now a basket case. I think that's part of, of what these people are pursuing. And now we have to be very careful what's going on in Chile, what's going on in Colombia. These revolutions don't happen in poor countries. They happen in prosperous countries. They happen in countries that have a possibility of leadership. That's what attracts this totalitarian virus. And Cuba was certainly there in the 1950s. I want to learn a little bit more about you. You are so passionate about Cuba and freedom in Cuba, and freedom in general, frankly. But so, so t t where do you come from? Tell me. Well, um, my family has been in Cuba for many, many generations. Part of my bloodline was already there before the Spanish got there. Uh, my, family, my family comes from eastern Cuba, from, from a province that, uh, that is uh, very important in Cuban history. I'm part of that extended and unified family that uh, was full of tradition and good values and principles. The other part of my family is from the other part of the island, from, from the western part, and they were also very loving people. And I grew up within that extended unified family. And I saw how communism had torn my family apart, how it had separated. There were beloved family members we never saw again because you could not return to Cuba once you left. And you know, my, my parents were professional, successful. They initially saw the revolution as a way to improve Cuba and they quickly saw that a communist police state was, was being set up and they decided they didn't want me to grow up as a slave. They wanted me to grow up as a free man. That makes me very emotional when I think about that. And they and my grandparents took some very hard decisions. My grandparents took the decision not to see me again. And they said, no, take him out of here. Get him, have him grow free. So I know what freedom means. Freedom is not a, a theory. Freedom is a reality. It's, it's a, a way of life. It's a mystery that's revealed to the, to the human condition as it, as it ascends spiritually. So it cannot be discarded. But that also, although I'm very proud to be American and I deeply love the U.S. And I've, I've grown up in a country of possibilities. Part of my soul is Cuban, deeply Cuban. And I cannot let go of that while the Cuban people are still enduring what they're enduring. A regime that is that is willing to destroy the Cuban nation and destroy the Cuban people in order to preserve a platform for the expansion of an evil ideology which has caused so much harm across the world. How old were you when, you, when they sent you to the U.S.? Well, I left my parents when I was five years old. I got to the U.S. when I was seven. We had to go from one country to another until finally making it to the U.S. And then I, I was raised mostly in Miami. Um, my degrees are in journalism, political science. I have a Ph.D. in philosophy and international relations. Um, and I pursued, I pursued activism for free Cuba since I was very young in my, in my teenage years. I think my calling was there from the beginning, a spiritual calling to serve the Cuban nation as best as I could. Um, and I, as I, I had a great childhood, but as, as I grew more and more aware and I saw what my family had gone through, the pain it had endured, family members who had been executed by this regime. We have one cousin who was 21 years old. He was executed. Uh, he was tried and executed within 24 hours. I have another beloved cousin who spent 18 years in prison for his opposition to the regime as part of the Catholic uh, labor youth. Uh, I can give you more and more examples. I have a great uncle who, when he arrived at the farm, he had built up and he had turned into a, into a successful enterprise. He got there one day, had been confiscated by the communists. He had a heart attack and collapsed right there and died. So I, I began to see these stories and I, and I began to read Cuban history and see what had occurred, what had happened. 
there was an intentional decision by Fidel Castro and his followers to destroy Cuban tradition, to destroy Cuban culture and civilization, and build something new, build a horrible thing, a police state. Um, and more than a police state, um, what, 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 what we can refer to as a culture of ants. They kept on saying they wanted to destroy the Cuban individual. Guevara said, the Cuban individual, as he has existed up to now, will cease to exist. We're going to turn this into a, a collectivist culture, a culture of the masses, where there's no individuality. And they've done everything possible to do that. And it's, it's just grotesque what's, what's occurred. Initially, at least, uh, it seems like in these revolutions, they always say, well, this is kind of this, the dictatorship part, you know, the, is, is just temporary. You know, we have to, stuff, we use that to foster change, right? It's a big lie. That's another lie. Um, an authoritarian regime is deeply different from a totalitarian. In an authoritarian regime, a branch of government takes over the functions of government for a limited period of time. There's, of course, repression. I'm not justifying it. It's, it's wrong. But generally, authoritarian regimes don't, don't uh, meddle with society. Society keeps on functioning. A totalitarian regime is something very different. That's where a leader or a family takes over a party. The party controls the government, controls the military, and they seek to destroy society and any free agency within society. They seek to absorb society. And they're willing to do whatever it takes. Murder, slaughter, massacres, incarceration on a mass scale in order to destroy the free will in society and create a lobotomized population that does whatever the state wants. It's, it's metaphysical. It's, it's an attempt to destroy the ability for free will within individuals. I've seen nothing more diabolical than that. Okay, so that's very interesting. The population is somehow kind of involved in the actions of the repressive street, almost supports it, right? And it's sort of, and there's this decide, decided effort to create or foster that portion of the population by the system, right? To help, I guess, to help perpetuate it. Once the mass emerges, once the masses emerge as a political unit, then the individual is in grave danger. And um, by mid-1959, in the last free surveys that were carried out by the remaining independent press in Cuba, this was just a few months after Castro had taken power, already uh, a good portion of the Cuban people, up to 40%, were saying, hey, when are the elections going to happen? Castro had promised elections in 18 months. That never occurred. So, but at the same time, it, by mid-1959, Castro was saying, we will always be the majority. And what he meant by that was that, that they knew there were scientific ways there was a method to create a permanent, a permanent mob of people who would do whatever the regime wanted, who would, who would surrender their moral decision-making to the state and were willing to do whatever was required of them because they liked the comfort of totalitarianism. Freedom is very difficult. Liberty demands a great deal of decision-making, responsibility, being aware of consequences. Uh, it means taking hold of your life and ascending spiritually. It's very, very difficult to, to live in freedom. Um, and, and totalitarianism promises release from all that. You don't have to think anymore. Fidel Castro will do all the thinking for you. This was something you could read in the Cuban press uh, starting in the early 60s. Fidel will think for us. No, that went against everything Cubans ever, had ever fought for. The ability to decide on your own. Uh, like Jose Marti, our great national philosopher and hero, Everything he did was Cubans must decide on their own. There's a moral structure to the universe. And if you join that moral structure through your free will, then you will be free. A type of freedom which is unmatched in any material terms. That's the promise 
of the Cuban nation. This guy went against all that. Fidel Castro Guevara, they wanted to destroy that. But they, they ran into something they didn't suspect. Unrelenting resistance from Cubans. 63 years of resistance. We haven't given up because there's, this, is, this is transcendent. You know, it's, an, it's astounding to me to hear that in the press, they, in that propaganda press in Cuba, they were saying, Fidel will think for us. It's, it's just, I got shivers as you, as you said this, because you know, the, 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 another characteristic of these communist or neo-Marxian ideologies is they're very out in the open about what their intentions are in a lot of ways. But some, some of us don't want to look at it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what do you think? No, it's there. Once you really read what they were saying, I mean, they were clearly saying what they were going to say. People perhaps want to listen to something else or they want to construe the words in a different fashion. But totalitarians say what they're going to say because it's a huge enterprise they're carrying out and they need to, to, to give clear instructions to their followers. There's something totalitarianism offers which a lot of people deeply enjoy. I won't say a lot of people, some people. It takes away all control you have over your own life, but it gives you incredible power over the life of your neighbor. So you can't rule your own life. You've lost free will within your society, but you can destroy somebody else's life or you can improve somebody else's life. So that ability to, to lord over somebody else or to have power over somebody else, for some people it's a great substitute for freedom. And that, once that is reinforced, uh, through diverse psychological means, through mass media. Castro used television, which Cuba had a lot of, uh, Cuba was one of the countries in Latin America that had the greatest uh, access to TV in, in the late 50s. He used television very, uh, very ably. Once you use mass media, uh, there was no private education. All education was controlled by the regime. Once you control everything being printed, once you control leaving and entering the country, then people become enclosed within a very, very narrow tunnel where very little information gets in. And unless you have very strong convictions and you're very firm in your beliefs and your faith and you understand history, you can get trapped in that mindset. Many have broken with it. There, there is a way of breaking through it, but it's not difficult because it's, it's a limiting of the spiritual ascension of you as an individual and of your society. You know, everything we've been dis we're discussing here is of profound significance, you know, not just for Cubans, but for Americans, frankly, for any society, which is, you know, struggling to some extent with these questions of, of what does it mean to remain a free society? Or what, is, what does freedom even mean? There is a kind of weird freedom to being able to you know, influence someone else's life so profoundly. And of course, we know exactly what we're talking about. You can cancel someone exactly. by saying the right word right? in these societies. This is the term we use here. And it's, and it's a, a, in many cases, a, a, a softer version, but, the, but the, the principle seems to be the same. If you wrote an article against the regime at the, at the bottom, they'll put in a few lines saying that the author was a kind of revolutionary and the workers who put in this newspaper did not share his views. It began like that. Or Castro would, would, uh, would use the podium to morally assassinate anybody who stood in his way. The initial president, then the prime minister, anyone who dared to oppose him, he would use the podium and the mass. There's a group of people who are being churned into a mass formation. Uh, based on everything the communists and the Nazis knew about that, about how to turn uh, a society into, into a mass formation. He was using that to destroy any individual who could stand in his way, to morally assassinate them. 
And when I see that and I see cancel culture, it's, it's the same script, it's the same philosophy, the same method underlying both. You mentioned that these protests are continuing. Um, another element is there's this huge, we're sitting here in Miami, and there's this huge, obviously, Cuban, <laughs> Cuban contingent, uh, all these people that have come over from Cuba and their descendants. Um, you know, I think you organized like a 30,000 strong car rally, if I recall, as a kind of an amazing, right? Um, so there is this, there's this sort of moral support for, from some portion of the population here. But at the same time, I didn't fully realize until we're sitting here that, that there's the significant protests are still happening. Yes, the protests continue. Um, these regimes are imperfect and they're, they initially seek to destroy an economy to control the people. Uh, in the case of Cuba, they had to control and destroy Cuban agriculture in order to control food supply. It's always about food. Totalitarian regimes are very big on, on, on food and agriculture. They need to control food to control cities. They need to control cities to control the middle class because the middle class can oppose them successfully. It can happen. So, but once they, they unleash these forces of destruction, then they lose control. Totalitarians are not perfect. They're not gods. I mean, they're, they're, they're human beings with, with diabolical ambitions, but also limited in, in their understanding of things. So they unleash these terrible forces which they never controlled. And part of that is the collapse of the Cuban economy. And they can't fix it. In order to fix that, they would have to allow the freedoms they, they, can, they, they, they suppress. So the fact is that this regime is, is collapsing economically. The economy will not flourish because individual initiative is completely restrained. The little experiments they're doing with individual initiative are very conditioned, very regulated, so they won't, they won't prosper. They're facing deep-seated problems in Cuban agriculture, which turned Cuba from a country that fed itself to a country that depends on U.S. food imports. 85% of what Cubans eat comes from the U.S. That fact is rarely known. If it, if it weren't for the U.S., there would be starvation and famine in Cuba because the regime cannot feed its own people. That's the number one failure of any regime. So Cubans are rebelling against all this because they know that it's, it's not U.S. economic sanctions against a dictatorship which prevent food from the Cuban countryside to be available in markets where Cubans can freely, freely purchase. Uh, they know all the wrong decisions this, this regime has made economically and how they haven't benefited the Cuban population. They see that the country has 12, 13, 14 hour blackouts and yet the hotel for, for foreigners, the hotels for foreigners, the five star hotels that the generals profit from are illuminated with air conditioned and people there have all the amenities they, they need. Cubans see all this, no one needs to, no one can fool them about their own reality. Uh, and this is what drives the insurgency forward. The regime still has a strong security apparatus that can prevent the emergence of a unified national movement but they can't destroy the, the, the movement as it is now, organic, based in neighborhoods and towns, and flourishing. We saw, we saw in the past few months, we've seen very moving videos and pictures, photographs of families collaborating to set up barricades so that police can't enter neighborhoods as part of the protests. That was unheard of in Cuba five years ago, uh, or three years ago. It's, it's a new phase of resistance by the Cuban people. You know, there's even internally about very, you know, extremely well-meaning Americans looking for, who maybe wish the Cuban people all the best and hope they have freedom. They're very wary of Americans or America or the government be getting involved in foreign expeditions, so to speak. And they, they have some good reason to be wary, right? How, how do you square all this? 
the Cuban experience between 1902 and 1959 is an example of successful American nation building. The U.S. and Cuba, first of all, U.S. intervention helped to end a genocide of the Cuban people. 200,000 Cubans died in that, in that process. The U.S. built infrastructures, infrastructure in Cuba, roads, uh, sanitary conditions. Um, hundreds or were a thousand, I think it was 2,000 Cuban teachers were, were brought to the U.S. for training in order to set up Cuban public schools. The Cuban public schools were very successful in raising literacy rates. Uh, the U.S. terms of commerce with Cuba were generally very positive. Cuba before 1959 always had a balanced budget and it always had a positive trade uh, balance with the U.S. In other words, Cuba exported more to the U.S. than it imported from the U.S. All that was successful. I think that the failures in, in American policy came from support for the Castro movement, which was there. There was covert support for Castro. Uh, U.S. diplomats have recognized as such. And then a series of mistakes that were, that were carried out in the beginning about not realizing what the movement was, what Castro was trying to do. The betrayal of the, of the liberation force that landed at the Bay of Pigs in 1961 was horrible for Cuban history. And I can keep on listing uh, several mistakes. So I think that with regards to Cuba, the U.S. mistake has been not to, to not act decisively, to not take a position and try to address the problem uh, instead of having uh, a zigzagging policy that leads nowhere. There's something called the Cuban Liberty Act, which on, in, in, in writing is very good. It's a comprehensive plan to help Cubans achieve their own democracy without U.S. US intervention. But that's never been fully applied, and it should be. I think the, I think the sanctions in the regime are necessary, and I think they should continue. But it should be part of a comprehensive effort, especially in light of what this regime has done throughout the hemisphere, what it's done in Latin America. I think that a, a big mistake we've made is that, you know, in 1991-92, uh, the powers that be proclaimed that the Cold War was over. No, the Cold War wasn't over. Soviet communism had fallen. But you still had a communist totalitarian state in China. You still had it in Cuba. And you had a different kind of totalitarian state in Iran, one in North Korea. So they're still there, and they've continued to grow. So what's happened is that we've erased from the academic memory what totalitarianism is and how it functions. It can adapt, it can mutate. Lenin himself experimented with capitalism as he set up the communist system. The Chinese Communist Party has experimented with capitalism, but that doesn't change the essence of the system, which is to control the human soul. To control the human soul. Yes. I think I've, I think I've said those words myself, actually. So you've actually been actively involved in numerous protests, both in the U.S. and, and outside. And, you know, I, I can't help but think there was this very prominent, you know, example of uh, protests in the U.K. in Birmingham, right, where basically in, this is in front of a Chinese embassy where protesters are now people came out of the Chinese embassy and, and attacked them with seemingly not too many repercussions, right? And it just, it, this actually reminded me of something that happened to you. Maybe you can tell me about that. Well, we've had numerous incidents around the world where activities were carrying out to denounce the situation in Cuba and advocate for freedom in Cuba were the subject of, a, of violent attacks by either directly the Castro regime personnel or agents of that regime, ideological agents or even paid agents. Um, in Panama, we were attacked by Cuban embassy thugs together with local pawns of the regime. Um, and, and several of us were badly hurt. I had two ribs broken, my, my, my knee was torn, I needed reconstruction surgery on, on my knee. A few weeks ago in Mexico City, we were attacked in front of the Cuban embassy by club-wielding 
uh, thugs paid and sponsored by that regime. And again, we were, some of the Mexicans who were demonstrating and myself were hit by, by these, these individuals and some members of our team were also uh, attacked. We've had many instances in Peru, we were also attacked at, a, at an event we were holding at a hotel. A mob of communists came in and attacked us. Uh, one guy was gonna hit me in the head with an iron bar and thanks to a friend, a Mexican friend who interceded, I was not hurt. That would, that would have deeply hurt me if I would have been hit in the head with, with that kind of weapon the, the individual had. So we've had many instances in Bolivia. We also had another attack at a university where we're going to have an event. Throughout the world, we have felt the persecution of this regime. They're more careful in the U.S., but they do it outside constantly. This is a dangerous regime. I, I've had death threats from Castro spokesmen here in Miami because of my activities. Reputable death threats, which the police are to this day still investigating and following up on. The regime has constantly attacked us. They've labeled me as a terrorist. In my life have I carried out a terrorist attack. But the regime, this regime which came to power putting bombs in movie theaters and parks and intimidating the Cuban population, which is all, also part of the method. This, this terrorist regime labels us as terrorists. We're advocates of freedom. We're advocates of democratic transformation. We're not the violent people. The violent people are the ones in power in Cuba. Well, there's this uh, term which is popular <laughs> called projection. Right. There's a, there's a lot of there seems to be a lot of projection. It seems to be a favorite, uh, you know, hard left tactic. What are you doing in all these countries? Doing protesting in front of the Cuban embassy? Tell me about that. Because there's so little press coverage of what happens in Cuba, we have to break that blockade. That's the real blockade. The blockade on information on what happens inside Cuba. So by going on these missions, participating in international conferences, organizing protests, meeting with political leaders, meeting with labor leaders, with student leaders, is how we get the word out. And it's been successful. A network of solidarity for Cuba, for a free Cuba, has emerged over the, over the past few years. And we've greatly contributed to that. We're not exclusively responsible. Others have also worked, but we've contributed to that. And there's a network of people now around the world who care about what really happens to the Cuban people and support that movement inside Cuba. But it's a very dangerous regime. It's a deadly regime. It has a pattern, a method of massacres and assassinations. Four American citizens were massacred in 1996, were international airspace, among them very close friends of mine, by this regime, unarmed aircraft shot down. They've carried out massacres of entire families trying to leave Cuba. The most recent, a month ago in, in, in eastern Cuba, I'm sorry, in western Cuba, they, they ran over a refugee boat, seven people died, including a two-year-old girl. And they've done this over and over again uh, repeatedly. To me, it's a tragedy that Canada and the European Union finance this regime. To me, it's a tragedy that the European Union, which is slapping sanctions on Russia, is aiding and abetting Russia's number one ally in the Western Hemisphere and in the international community. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's morally incoherent, and it's possible because of the lie about Cuba, the doctrine of the lie. And not enough people in the, in the responsible left have broken with this lie. And there's some in the extreme right who also sympathize with that kind of regime. So until we get a consensus that there needs to be change in Cuba and for this awful regime to end, the Cuban people will, will have to continue with their fight alone. So, and, and you're saying that a lot of these, these people in these communities, some of them are actually acting as actual agents of the, paid agents of the regime. So how did you Certainly in the U.S. figure it's a lot this of, out? Well, because we are the object of their surveillance and their intelligence work in the U.S. I've been repeatedly warned by U.S. intelligence services that I'm a target. In the trial against the, the Cuban espionage network called the WASP network, which functioned on, in, in the U.S. until the late, late 90s, early, early 2000s, um, there was a list of people that were following. My name was on that list. Um, in their attacks against me, they've revealed personal information, stuff which, how did they know these, these things about me? 
All that is designed to intimidate me. They're not going to intimidate me. I mean, I have fear, but my love for Cuba, my love for freedom is greater than my fear. And besides, what the people are going through inside Cuba is much greater and much worse than anything I can face. So the regime uses its control of the Cuban population to try and expand its intelligence outside of Cuba. It, it, it has never managed to control the exile community, as I've heard China has managed to do with many exile communities. That's something I've, I've heard. They never managed to establish that control because of the unity of the community against the regime. But they, they keep on trying, and they have an ample network of informants and of, uh, of pawns that they use for, for violence. For example, in Mexico. In Mexico, they bust people in from another city to, to attack us in front of the Cuban embassy. They themselves admitted that. Who paid for those buses? Who paid for their lunch? Who paid for their breakfast, their dinner, in that day-long trip to, to Mexico? What are all those Cuban flags that were prepared? They were using bamboo staffs for their flags. Anyone who knows about martial arts will tell you there's a reason for using bamboo to hit somebody. Bamboo doesn't break easily, and it hurts a lot when they hit you with it. Everything was very well organized. And besides that, there was a Cuban in the back who was guiding them, who was telling them what to do. I faced this over and over again in Honduras. We went to Honduras to the OES conference. They brought a mob of 300 Sandinistas in Honduras with their red and black handkerchiefs, and they surrounded the hotel where we were at, asking for our execution. And I clearly saw a guy in the back of the park, there was a park in front of the hotel, standing by a tree, and he was the Cuban leading, guiding the whole thing. I went down and I confronted them, and they surrounded me, and I, I, you know, uh, I, and I faced them with, with what they were doing. But again and again, we face this kind of international repressive machine. So they don't have money for food for the people of Cuba, but they do have money to finance this kind of repression internationally. They've done much worse. They've killed people outside Cuba. They've gravely injured people outside Cuba opponents. Uh, they've carried out these massacres in international airspace. They've done a lot worse than just simply attack us. Um, they've murdered leaders of the movement. Oswaldo Payá, who was a Catholic uh, engineer, a man who mobilized 35,000 Cubans for, for a pro-freedom plebiscite, he was murdered, him and Harold Cepedo, a young Catholic leader. They were, they were murdered in a mysterious car crash in eastern Cuba, which everything indicates was one of their operations. Uh, Laura Poyan, the founder of the Ladies in White, that were these, these women who, to this day, march for the release of political prisoners in Cuba. She died of, of, of a mysterious illness that just wiped her out within days. Um, and I can go on and on with all, all these leaders who've been murdered by the regime. So they have a pattern of executions. They have a pattern of massacres. Where did the Havana Syndrome start? Where did the directed energy attacks against U.S. and Canadian diplomats start? They started in Cuba. And that happened, I'm, I'm sure, I've written a paper on it, uh, there's a direct connection between the close symbiosis, the, the, the close alliance between the Russian and the Castro regime intelligence services and this attack on American and, and Canadian diplomats. But over and over again, all this gets brushed off to the side. I mean, I went to school here, I have four college degrees, and I spent my life arguing with professors that were presenting incomplete information on Cuba. Sometimes they themselves were uninformed, other times they were ideological. They wanted to say it no matter what. But I've faced this throughout academia, how, how they, you know, there's, this, there's this desire to protect that regime from its own worst crimes, not, not to have people know what they've done. And it seems like the common thread for you know, every communist regime, it always has its apologists, and they're very fervent in many cases. I think the apologists are part of the system. They're not accidental. Something we've told leaders, pro-democracy leaders, over and over again. 
the regime in Cuba is not a temporary adversary. It's an, ex it's an existential enemy of democracy. And part of the totalitarian virus is its manifestation within the free world. Without the fifth columnist, totalitarian regimes could not succeed. Look at the case of China, Harry Dexter White. What role did he play in, 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 in subverting the ability of the nationalist forces to finally defeat the communist, uh, the communist guerrillas? He played a great role. And how many more like him? In Cuba, we have the same case. There's a lady in prison who was the person in charge of Cuba intelligence for the Defense Intelligence Agency was working for the Cuban regime, was a spy for the Castro regime, Ana Belen Montes. And there's been many more arrests of people within the U.S. government that were working for the Castro regime. So we're facing a bankrupt, collapsing communist regime that has a, a top-level intelligence force. So in Cuba, there is the Ministry of the Interior, which is sort of analogous to the Ministry of State Security in China, ultimately responsible for the repression and control of the people. Um, and I understand that actually the, the, the Chinese have been training the Cubans. So tell me a bit about this. Yeah, the story's been broken. There's pictures, there's graphic evidence of instructors from something called the, the People's Armed Police, which were apparently the leading force in crushing the Hong Kong pro-democracy protests that have trained uh, specialized forces of the Castro regime to repress the Cuban people. I'm talking about the, the so-called Black Berets, the Maroon Berets. These are units which have put down uh, protests and uprisings in different parts of Cuba. They are, they're being trained by the Chinese. Cuba has a seemingly very successful tourism industry. It's a tourism industry controlled by a few corrupt generals, by the military which finances mostly the repressive military sector. Cuba is an attractive nation. The Cuban people have a way of life, have a joy about living that nothing can crush. And Cuba is a very culturally powerful nation. Look at the amount of, of music we've given the world, of, of art, of literature. Now, most of those tourists don't see Cuba. They see you know, very well-defined tourist areas where they remain, particularly the case with Canadians. They go in massive numbers to Cuba and they don't leave their, their tourist enclaves. So you're not seeing how Cubans live like or, or what they're doing. But the money from this, the money from this tourism industry funds repression. There's a direct connection between one and the other. So I think until the pandemic, they had, very, they had a successful tourist industry. It had it before Castro also. Um, but it's important to know that there's a moral cost to engaging in this kind of tourism. You're going to feed a dictatorship. You're going to feed a, a machine that crushes and imprisons children. There's underage. There's minors in Cuba in prison for protesting. Women, uh, which uh, a regime which persecutes religion openly. It just got included in the list of, of countries where religious freedom is not respected by the U.S. State Department. So when you go there and you take your money, you're financing the worst. You're financing a beast that will devour you. And, so the, and there's no way to, to go and, is there's no way to go and not sort of, I guess, finance the regime? It's difficult right now. I would recommend that you don't stay at a, at a tourist hotel. Try and stay in, in one of the, in somebody's private home, private house that is available. The regime supervises it and controls it, but it's a little different from, from what a hotel, hotel constitutes. And try and speak directly with the Cuban people. They'll tell you what what's going on. They'll tell you what they're suffering. You know, you were mentioning these few generals that, that benefit from this industry, that, that run it. Um, there's been some sort of purge of generals in the last year, hasn't there? I mean, to, what, what is that all about? Something very strange has happened in a regime as tightly closed and as militaristic as this one. And since July 11, 2021, we've had 26 Cuban generals, many of them in key positions, mysteriously die. The regime often blames COVID, 
But knowing this kind of regime, and this regime has been very bloody in its internal purges. I mean, it's been totally intolerant and, uh, and destructive of anybody within their own ranks who, who tries to protest or, or uh, disagrees with the decision. So the deaths of so many generals in so little time indicates to me some kind of purge has taken place and that there's, there are real deep divisions within, within the regime. Um, you mentioned that Canadians go en masse to Cuba. I think that's that's correct. I've certainly I've certainly know people. Many people have had it. Hence my question of, about uh, about tourism. But uh, what what is this ca Canadian Cuban connection? Well, I think there's an article we published in the Toronto Star, which is that the Canadians care for Cuba in a careless way. They care for Cuba in a superficial way. The beaches, the music, the culture. But do they really care about what Cubans are undergoing? About the kind of repression they're suffering from? Uh, it indicates to me that the level of Canadian economic investment in Cuba, both in tourism and in the mining sector and other areas, is completely negligent of what this regime represents for most Cubans, the kind of repression most Cubans suffer. I wish Canada would, would uh, reflect on this and it would come to a moral reckoning about what its policies have caused to the Cuban people. But this is so you would say this is a success of the kind of propaganda initiative that this is a great place. I mean, one of the things you often hear is the medical system in Cuba is, is fantastic, right? Well, Cuba has a long tradition of very good medicine. In 1955, Cuba had more neurosurgeons than the United Kingdom. There's a long tradition there from the colony of good doctors and good medicine. You have to understand that the good medicine a foreigner can find when they go to Cuba isn't available to most Cubans. Cuban doctors are good, they're dedicated, they're committed. They don't have the tools with which to attend their, their patients. And the embargo doesn't cover medicine. So the fact that the Cubans lack basic medicines that they lack, that they have to ask their family members in Miami to send them or buy them medicine or food in Cuba is, is a result of the failed policies of the communist system. Do you have a sense of what portion of the population is, you know, let's say freedom seeking? And what portion of the population is indifferent? And then what portion of the population is, you know, captured in this mass formation? That's a very interesting question. I think the few independent surveys which have been carried out indicates a great majority of Cubans who want change. I'd say no less than 80% of Cubans want change. I would say there's a 10% of apathy, people who don't want to get involved, and a 10% of hardcore mass formation uh, communist cadres. Um, well, recently when the regime carried out the municipal election, so-called election, because there's only one candidate with one political party, the regime admitted to that 41% of those who can vote didn't go vote. They didn't participate. If the regime recognizes 41%, the number is far higher. It could be 61, 71%. So this shows you the level of discontent and also the level of people who are leaving the country. They don't want to be there. Now, of those 80%, many, many still have fear. But a substantial portion of that 80% has been breaking with that fear. That's why I think that change is coming. So what is it that you hope Americans can know and do or the American establishment, the policy establishment, should think and do? There's a blueprint for change in the Cuban Liberty Act. And far more importantly than the Cuban Liberty Act, there's a blueprint for change in the soul of the Cubans. Cubans are a freedom-loving people. Wherever Cubans have found freedom, they have prospered around the world. 
The only place Cubans aren't prospering is in Cuba because of communism. The problem will only get worse. Procrastinating the problem of communism in Cuba will only increase the problem. Um, and we're seeing it now in, its, in all its effects. So I think that a proactive policy that takes as a platform the Cuban Liberty Act and the need to empower Cubans to conquer their freedom and to limit the ability to repress that regime, I think that's paramount. And what do you say to folks that'll say, well, look, America's engaged in all these places. You know, there's, there's all this you know, support for, the, for Ukraine. There's, you know, pretty serious activities across the Pacific, right? There's the increasing China threat. And so this, this would be kind of yet another place for the America to overextend itself and maybe, you know, cause more harm than good. There are deep cultural issues in countries the U.S. can't fix. It can begin to address. I think we're a force for good in the world because the values upon which we were founded are solid values. They're solid representations of the reality of the human soul. But I think America has also had a, lot, a great deal of success in, in, in helping to foster democratic cultures, certainly in Japan, in Taiwan, in Germany, uh, the Baltics, Poland, Czech Republic, Hungary. You, you, you've had the emergence of democratic societies which take responsibility for their actions and, and grow both spiritually and materially. And I think Cuba could be one of those successes because certainly the history of Cuba and the nature of the Cuban people are conducive to freedom. Um, it's taking a great deal of energy to repress that freedom, to repress the Cuban people. And that regime has had international support from the get-go. It's been an international creation from the beginning, repressing Cubans. If that were to change, if Cubans could take control of their own destiny, then they could build a very successful democracy. I, I have faith in the Cuban people. Well, Orlando Gutierrez Boronat, such a pleasure to have you on the show. It's been an honor to be here. Thank you all for joining Orlando Guitares Boronat and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck.